Let's, let's pray for the, the message that we're going to deal with. Father, thank you for this time that we can spend together. Thank you for your word that you've given us and your Holy Spirit to, to help us to work through your word and have understanding of what you are telling us and teaching us and, and uh, to, to help us to live the, the lives that you want us to live that you, as, is, it is explained to us in Scripture. And we thank you for it, Father. And we, we thank you for the, uh, the time we can spend in your word this morning, in particular on this particular topic. And we pray that you will be with us, that you open our minds, that you will um, help us as a church, not only locally, but the church uh, universally, uh, to do uh, much better when dealing with uh, uh, this topic uh, that we're dealing with today. And uh, Lord, just pour your grace on us and help us to be able to pour grace on each other. In Jesus' name, amen. So I apologize up front to all our mothers here today that the topic that I'll be speaking on is not a message that would be typical on uh, Mother's Day, such as being on the uh, attributes of motherhood or any of those types of related topics. Uh, this is one of the things that happens when you're preaching through a book. And uh, the topics that we address happens as the Holy Spirit um, kind of opens them up to us as we hit that particular section of scriptures. And today uh, we have some of those topics. Um, I was thinking that uh, BJ said he needed to be away today, and I'm highly suspicious about his motives. And uh, But he's been doing a great job in our series on 1 Corinthians, and look forward to having him back, I think, next weekend. But um, I will be filling in today, obviously. I'm going to be speaking on a topic that can be very sensitive, especially in the church today. Um, and that is on marriage, which is the less part of the sensitivity. It's uh, fairly well accepted, but uh, the main point of today is on divorce, which is, uh, um, as I was praying, is uh, something that the church could do much better on dealing with, especially those that are among our bodies uh, that are uh, have gone through divorces or are going through divorces or uh, maybe even remarriage, I think we could do a lot better job and hopefully we'll, we'll do better here. Um, the text, as I said, is specifically uh, today uh, on divorce, but I also wanted to start off on a little more positive note, and since we haven't been able to do it yet in this section that we've been dealing with, with sexuality and so forth, I, I thought I would start with... Uh, a short discussion on marriage and then transition into more of the text today and deal with divorce. So let me uh, start um, by addressing a little bit in the sense that this is um, more of where I personally am with my understanding with scriptures. I don't want to necessarily commit the other elders to every single thing that I'm going to be bringing up today. Um, I think we're very close on a lot of them, but there's one part that, uh, that you'll see as we go through this sermon um, 
that I don't know uh, how all of us especially fit, but this is where I'm at and what I think Scripture is saying on this topic. And I also know that there is, um, you know, I understand that in, in, in some churches in the Christian community, again, we're a family that's worldwide, which is a wonderful thing, but uh, the many pastors, the many elders that are in the churches throughout the world, not all of them would fully agree with me uh, on the topic of divorce as I'm going to kind of present it to you today. And that's okay. I mean, we, we all are in a learning process, and it's possible that I may, as I, I was going to say as I get older, but good grief, I'm already 63, so I, uh, I don't know how much change I'm going to do in the next 10 or 20 years, but uh, probably some, I would imagine. But um, as I get to know Scripture and, 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 and study more, uh, it's possible that I could change a little bit on this as in some topics. I also cannot address every single situation that we experience in marriages and in families that are going that may end up in divorce. Uh, there's just too many issues that take place, and I, I'm against having some type of a, a list that we might be able to look at and say, well, you know, we're having this problem in our our marriage, so therefore, let's double-check the list. Uh, yep, that's on there, so you're gone. And uh, I think that's that's a problem. And uh, so I, I disagree with having that type of a of a um, version of dealing with divorce. But uh, I'll explain maybe a little bit more of that as we progress. Probably the best part to start with is by reading the text. So. You can follow along with me on the screen or turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and I'll begin in verse 10 and read the section and then I'll kind of begin. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the, for the believing husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, and in, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. And I pray that he will nourish us today from his text. Very generally, marriage 
was created by God for his children. And one of his purposes was to provide us with a picture of his loving covenant relationship that he has with his children. It's supposed to be a reflection of reality in heaven and reality of, of the type of relationship he has. I think it's very interesting that the Bible begins with a marriage in the early chapters of Genesis of a man and a woman and concludes in the last chapters of Revelation with a marriage between, between Christ and his church, his bride. In marriage, a man and a woman are given an opportunity to love each other as God has loved them. It's heartbreaking that so many marriages never achieve this or anything like this in its totality. In the book by Jim Neuheiser, which is called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, Jim provided a brief description or a definition of marriage. And he says, It's a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. Genesis 2, verses 21 to 25, is the first time that we have a reference of this institution that God created, this relationship between a man and a woman, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And the implication in that text is that it should be for a lifetime, for the duration of their life. The text says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I think that statement's kind of interesting, especially since Adam and Eve were the first man and woman created. They don't have a father or mother in the sense of a human father or mother. Yet, they are to leave their father and mother, it says, which obviously this would have to pertain to future relationships, future marriages that take place after theirs. From that day on, a man and a woman come together in this confidential relationship. They're uniting together and are becoming one flesh outside of the protective bounds of their parents' home or their, their, uh, from under their protective influence uh, of, of what they were used to as they were growing up as children. A few examples that I read as I was preparing for today uh, that I think might help to understand the concept of this two becoming one, which is, you know, we, we wonder just how complete we can understand that or even reach it in, in, in the flesh. But the, the, the concept between two becoming one or the complete unity of parts to make a whole. And one image would be of many grapes, individual grapes that are all together, but they're together in a cluster. So they're individual, but yet they come together to make that cluster. Another one on more of a spiritual side is the one God in three persons. That's an example of individuals coming together in unity in, in a relationship. I don't think too deeply there with those particular examples because that was more than two in a picture coming together as one. 
Uh, I'm not saying that polygamy is, is scriptural. That's not where I'm going with that. It is just concepts that uh, we're considering. But this does not mean that either person stops becoming themselves. When, you, when you're going from that two people to one, there's still individualism in there. It's two individual people coming together. But they're coming together united with their spouse for common purposes that are beneficial for their relationship. And hopefully it becomes less complicated and less of a struggle than it was maybe right after you were married as you get older and more mature in your marriage. That idea of coming together on common purposes. A marriage is between one man and one woman and is made under or before God. In other words, it's not a three-way relationship. I think I've I've heard it brought across that way. It's not man, woman, and God kind of in this entangled relationship to try to become um, this union, but it's between two persons, a man and woman, who make a vow before God to whom they will give account. So it is a serious uh, commitment when you do this because you're before God. Jesus said in Matthew 19 concerning this union, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's an act that takes place before God, and it's also true regardless if the parties even acknowledge that God is part of it. This would fall on people because God established marriage to people who don't even believe in God or don't follow God as their Lord. It would still um, involve them. In other words, when an unbelieving man and an unbelieving woman marry, they may not have an understanding of the root purposes of God in marriage, but they are, in fact, in a legitimate marriage by scriptural standards. And Jesus warned that no one should try to dissolve their marriage either, just as in a Christian marriage. Marriage should not be um, actively um, sought after to dissolve it by anybody. I think this is partly why Paul gave the Corinthian church the instructions in chapter 7, verses 12 through 15 that we read a few minutes ago. In this section, Paul states that if a marriage exists where there was an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse, however they came to that position, if they were both unsaved and one of them became a believer, or maybe they came together as a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, whichever way it may have came together, however it worked out, the unbelieving spouse, if they want to remain in the marriage, then the believing spouse should remain in the marriage. You should not divorce just because you're now married to an unbelieving spouse. We, Elisa and I, knew a lady in one of the first churches that we went to as a married couple um, early in our marriage. And the wife, the lady, came to our church, and her husband was an unbeliever, and she had been praying for him at that point for 20 years for his salvation. And 
I assume if she's still living, she's probably still praying unless he has converted by then. But um, So we don't know what God will do in those marriages. But in that particular situation in Corinth that he brought up, if the, unbelie- if the believing and unbelieving spouse wants to stay together, then they stay together. Don't break up for some other reason. In Ephesians 5, Paul states that a, there's a connection between marriage and our relationship with God. And on this, Jim Neuheiser wrote, the experience of a living marriage helps believers to better understand God's love for us. Similarly, the ongoing experience of God's love for us in Christ provides a model for us to emulate in our marriages. So this type of marriage and this type of things that God is saying in Scripture, of course, works the best and is only possible when it is a Christian marriage. When both parties are, that is how it will experience the best. The institution of marriage was created with the intent to be a beautiful relationship that benefits men and women, but ultimately its highest purpose is to love and glorify God. That's always the purpose of what man is supposed to be trying to do, is to bring glory to God. Now, I would be negligent if I didn't address issues that we're facing today in the world around us as we are speaking about marriage. Um, I've been careful so far to state, as I've been bringing up marriage, that it is between one man and one woman before God, because that's what Scripture says. But regardless of what government or our society around us try to call other types of relationships, such as a union between two persons of the same sex, or a union between a person and an animal, or a life-size doll, or imaginary people that are created by AI or artificial intelligence, which, you know, when you're looking at some of the stories in the, in the news today, you kind of look at people going, you are absolutely crazy, and, uh, and marrying their pet dog or you know, whatever else they come up with and claiming that that's a marriage. But all these types of relationships do not fall under the biblical definition of marriage. While God originally created a perfect, fulfilling relationship in the first marriage, the problem is that right after Genesis 2, we have Genesis 3. With the fall, sin entered into the world. And it has corrupted everything that was good and perfect. And while marriage in its original form in the garden was perfect and wholesome and glorifying to our Creator, sin has brought with it conflict and ugliness in our relationships, including marriage. Now, divorce, or wanting to get out of a marriage, probably dates back to the early years of human history. When you look at the early books of, of the Bible, there's obviously deep sin right after the first murder of 
a lot of sin that is taking place, and it's all kind of some, at some point happening for the first time. I can't imagine that someone didn't come up with the idea that, well, I'm married to this person, but I don't want to be married to that person anymore, so I sent her away, or I doubt sent him away, but sent her away. And that had to have been happening, but the first mention of it in Scriptures we find in Deuteronomy 24 when Moses made a provision for divorce, and my ESV Bible uses the, the words for some indecency, is how they describe it. Or as Jesus describes it in Matthew 19, when he, when he refers back to this um, reference as sexual immorality. Divorce goes against God's original plan of marriage. And I think Jesus reiterates this with his comments in Matthew 19, but then he explained why, when he explains why Moses gave us or gave the Jewish people the provision of divorce in the Mosaic law. And Jesus explained it was because of the hardness of heart. It was because of sin. It was because of the fall. That's why divorce ended up coming into the picture for the first time because that was not God's original intent with the first marriage. Sin corrupted everything in creation, and it produces hardness of hearts. And it, and it, and it acts out in every imaginable way that you can come up with. Notice, though, what Jesus said in verse 8 of Matthew 19. that Moses allowed them to divorce, not that they must divorce. It was never a mandate or a requirement. It was, and still is, I think, an option, not a mandate. I think that the way Jesus stated it, it was in some ways intended to provide a hope of reconciliation. Because he could have said, this is why you must give that certificate of divorce to your spouse. And he did not. There are two exceptions that are usually agreed upon as grounds of, for divorce in the Bible. The first we've already mentioned, which is sexual immorality. And usually it had been defined as adultery, from what I've ever remember as a child, but I think Jesus expanded that definition when he used the word that's translated from the Greek as porneia. And BJ recently spent some time discussing that word, I believe, uh, a few sermons ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it is believed that it could and probably should be used to describe other types of sexual sin in addition to adultery, such as there could be grounds for divorce for homosexuality or lesbianism or incest, addiction to pornography, bestiality, or any other type of sexual sin that has kind of come about from the fall, any of those, and especially the addiction to them, could be grounds for divorce if we look into that word. However, this would mean that someone could have 
grounds for divorce, not that they should or must divorce. The other exception that is allowed in Scripture is provided by Paul in our text here, and it's specifically in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And this has been called the desertion, particularly by an unbelieving spouse of a believing spouse. Apparently in the Corinthians church, there were some who were married to their spouse before becoming a Christian, and then after conversion, the unbelieving spouse didn't want to continue in the marriage and left or abandoned their partner. The other thing that may have been taking place is that same scenario, two unbelieving, one of them becomes a believer, and now that they're a believer, they decide for uh, spiritual reasons to divorce, to dedicate themselves to um, purity and not having sex with a partner and setting themselves aside for um, becoming more spiritual. Both of those having the same result. Paul says that this is an exception that would allow divorce to take place. But he also emphasized before this verse that if the unbelieving spouse consents to live with the saved spouse, then they should continue in their marriage. You should not leave. So, so far I think that most pastors that I know would agree uh, with what I've said. That while marriage is intended for a man and a woman to be in a lifelong relationship, that God provides two exceptions that would allow for a divorce from that marriage relationship. Now I'm going to venture into an area that's a little less agreed upon. It is being discussed a lot um, in some circles. It has been for a, a little while. Um, but it is probably not as, as uh, commonly agreed upon. Just remember that regardless of, of uh, what else I say, that divorce was permitted only because of man's sin or hardness of heart, and it should only be pursued when there's no other option. It's the last option. And I believe that a marriage can survive the worst of sins. There's no sin that a partner can do that your marriage cannot survive it with a lot of work, a lot of grace, a lot of forgiveness. But it could be something that there could be healing. And with this, but in that case, both partners have to be willing to make it work. With that in mind, I want to suggest that based on the comment of Paul in verse 15, where he says, in such cases, that Paul leaves room for other situations that may rise to the same level as sex, sexual immorality or desertion. But whatever that act may be, the harm would have to be something that would fail to meet the expectations of the marriage covenant in the same level that sexual morality or abandonment would reach and the harm that that brings to a marriage. Of course, my concern with making this statement is 
and with this line of thinking is that because we're all sinners, we all fall short of honoring our marriage covenants, it would be very easy for someone to find fault or determine that their particular situation qualifies as an exception under this category. That's why I kind of frown upon the thought of some type of a list being in existence. John Piper, who a lot of you may know or at least know that uh, we quote him a lot or use some of his material a lot, he wrote an objection to this viewpoint, actually. And he stated, to put it bluntly, the implication of this article is that every marriage I'm aware of could already have legitimately ended in divorce. And I do agree with Piper's observation. At any given time or surely during a, a lifetime of marriage, the marriage life that exists, there are times when we could probably all find fault and all find a reason that we no longer want to be married. And that's his concern about that. So I agree with his observation, but I also repeat that just because a marriage has grounds for divorce does not mean that they must divorce or they should divorce. My, my hope and desire, and I think Scripture's hope and desire, is for reconciliation, to be able to work through those difficulties in life. And that's just, you know, I, 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 I question when you're talking to a couple, and, you know, I think, I think sometimes they're covering up a lot of things, that have been married a long time, and they say, oh, we've never had trouble in our life or we've never had a problem in our life and you're looking at it like <laughs> I mean could you marry an angel or what I mean how in the world can you not run into difficulties in your marriage I mean you're two sinners saved by grace and brought into this relationship you're going to have problems it's just going to happen but I also think that every marriage that's in trouble or moving towards a potential divorce should be assessed, and th- and, th- and this is why I I, um, I I another reason why I don't like that list concept, which I don't know if anybody who really likes that list, although it would be very convenient for people. But every marriage that's having difficulty is a very unique and specific marriage between two partners and their their struggles that they're going through. Could there be similarities to other people? Yes, but we don't know that unless we're able to sit down and really kind of dig into the relationship and see what is going on. Every relationship has its own unique blessings and its own failures and the struggles that the couple is having and seeks ways to confront sin is is part of the way you start dealing with these marriages with difficulty. You you need to find out what the problem is, and that takes time. You need to confront sin when it's it's there. You need to encourage repentance. You need to work on relationship to become more towards what God intended to be and to help find ways to heal the relationship if that's possible. Understanding that 
there may still be a justification for divorcing. And that obviously there are marriages that don't make it. We see that in our churches and we see that in society. With all the attempts to help the relationship to recover, it could still end in divorce. So how should the church be involved in marriages and divorce situations? How do we deal with a broken marriage in our local church? You're at Redwood Christian Fellowship. How do we treat divorcees that come to our church to visit or want to join? Or what about a couple that uh, may have divorced one partner or both partners divorced and had been remarried and they come to your church? How do we treat them? How do we deal with that particular situation? All these are very common situations in the church at large and in our own church. And probably most families here have that type of situation. There's probably a divorce that has taken place, maybe with your parents or, or close relatives. Some of them have remarried. How do we deal with that? What does the, so what does the church need to do and how do we do it? We need to be actively promoting a Christian marriage and what is involved with God and how He intends it to be. And that's not only from the pulpit or from Bible studies or other avenues we have for teaching and preaching, but I think a very important aspect of of this in the church is Christian marriages that we have in the church we have many people who are married and some of them for short periods of time some have been married for many many decades and they're a vital part of the modeling and the teaching that we have the opportunity to use in the church to promote Christian marriages it's such a blessing to have those couples in our churches who have been married for many years and have been successful in traveling together through the hardships of of life together. They they have a wealth of information and ideas that might help you in your particular situation and in your marriage. Of course, this doesn't mean that they have uh, uh, perfect marriages just because you have the title Christian on your Christian marriage uh, title doesn't mean that it was perfect and that it didn't have struggles. They deal with their own difficulties. They have problems that they face. All marriages have rough roads for a period. And that's because we are just two redeemed sinners that have come together in this relationship. And while it's not easy to do, it would be great. I don't know if I'd want to be the first couple to, to, to do this type of thing, but maybe in a more personal, individual way, it'd be great to have these couples who were willing to open up some about struggles that they may have gone through when we have things that we're dealing with in our marriage. Be able to have a couple that you could go to and sit down with and, and, and ask them, I mean, how, how did you get through this difficulty that we're going through? Have you ever experienced this? And get their wisdom 
The church needs to be ready to assist when required or encourage married couples to work through their difficulties. A lot of times we know when a family is struggling. But in our Western American way of doing things, a lot of times we ignore it. We don't want to feel like we're intruding into their privacy. We don't, we don't want to um, you know, bring it up because we don't want to make things worse. Well, I can tell you it's probably already is pretty bad if, if we know something is going on. But the church leadership or those Christian marriages who have gone through things and can sense that there is some difficulty... They need to be aware and maybe encourage them some way. Ask if there's some way that we can help them sit down and talk or whatever it may be. You know, life is tough. Marriage is tough. has a lot of great, wonderful aspects of it. I could never even dream about being single again now that I've been married for 40 years. But there are times when you hit rough patches and you got to deal with it as a couple. you got to work through it. And thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit who's working in us and we have the church community to pray and help us as we go through those struggles if we tap into that. So often today, people enter into marriages, into these relationships with the assumption that if it doesn't work out, always can just leave them, can divorce them. And that's a plan B to getting married, which is craziness. That marriage is probably going to fail if you go in it with the thought that there's always an exit door that I can hit if I have difficulties and don't like what's going on. They could always divorce and move on. We've made it too comfortable, I think, for divorce in our society and in our churches. And we've made it too easy. The no-fault divorce has been that, that, that's made a, a dissolution or dissolution of marriage just as casual as what the you know the stories of the Jewish man who's married and he didn't like the meal that his wife made, so he gives her a certificate of divorce and tells her to, to leave. That was wrong then, and that would be wrong today to do that type of thing. But that is basically what no-fault divorce has created. You can leave for whatever reason. And I've said it a number of times, divorce should be the last option. Having married mature married couples in our church relationship is important. And if you're considering marriage, you should seek out biblical-based premarital counseling from your church leadership, from those married couples that you have in your church. They have great wisdom to share with you about marriage. You should be looking for that information. 
We want your marriage to be successful. We want it to be as close to what we could possibly experience in marriage on earth today in the fallen world. We want it to be that. Church leaders need to be watchful and wise in how to handle complaints of abuse or sinful behavior or addictions or various types of desertions in marriages that come up. I think we've failed in that a lot of times. I don't know how many times I hear stories of a couple who is in an abusive situation, either verbally, emotionally, physical, maybe all of those, other types of things where the leadership of the church, their more sole concern is to keep that marriage together and both parties at home thinking that that's going to be the right place to be and very possibly putting someone in danger of their lives or physical harm. We need to be more careful about how we deal with those situations. And that's another reason why it's very important for the leadership to be involved with that couple trying to find out what specifically is going on in their relationship and then confronting sin if it comes out and is identified. Too often we push for quick fixes or reconciliations uh, far before the issues are understood or worked on. Every marriage, every situation that we deal with or or part of should be prayerfully and carefully assessed and discussed and counseled to make sure that all members of that relationship, that marriage, are safe, but that they also have the opportunity to work towards finding the best way forward. And hopefully, that's towards reconciliation if at all possible. So even though I acknowledge that there are other there are reasons and justifications for divorce and that divorces will happen I would always push for trying to reconcile a marriage if any way possible I think another problem that we deal with in our society and in our churches is that we as individuals should be much more careful and prayerful in who that we're agreeing to marry. Many times a marriage is taking place with a partner that you should have never agreed to marry. You made a bad decision based on your own wants and desires at the time instead of seeking God and what He wants for you. And then you get confused or maybe even mad down the road when God, or or mad at God when maybe you're facing divorce. Instead, that couple should seek counsel from those married couples in the church, seek counsel from your pastor's And it might save people from life of hurt and heartache. Might not, because you are still marrying a sinner. You're still marrying people that may have other things going on that hasn't come out yet in the sense of mental health issues or health issues or whatever. But it might. 
So is there ever a time when divorce is the only, is there ever a time when divorce is the option? I assume that the answer is yes. But it should be much less common today than it is. Jim Newheimer in his book had a summary on one, in one chapter that uh, I think is worth sharing. He said, we need to be very careful not to go beyond Scripture in making allowances for divorce and remarriage, which we didn't speak much about yet. Our Lord Jesus spoke and taught about an exception from his own divine authority. Paul, an apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave a believer abandoned, abandoned by an unbeliever freedom to divorce and remarry. Given that God hates divorce and that we are warned not to have any part in separating a couple joined by God in marriage, we should err on the side of caution when considering grounds for divorce and remarriage and not go beyond what is explicitly taught in Scripture. So how do we as a church deal with divorced persons or those who have divorced and remarried? I think we need to deal with them the same way that God deals with us individually. We need to exercise grace. God forgives and he extends grace to us all the time. Every time you sin throughout the day and ask for repentance, God has given you grace. Every time you sin and you don't ask repentance, you're probably still getting grace because he's not punishing you at the moment like you should be. But we need to extend grace to each other. But that doesn't mean that we let sin go without correction or confronting a sinner when we know that they are sinning. But it is a fact that we have divorces in our churches today. We have remarriages in our churches today. And we have those couples who have come as um, just like we have as uh, individuals, as single people, as married couples. We're all coming here for the same purpose. And we need to extend grace to each other. We can't look down on them from our supposed position of superiority. We need to welcome them as the saved sinners that they're trying to be, living their lives, pleasing God, and let them face God for their own decisions in life just as we face God for ours. We're not the Holy Spirit. We need to confront as Scripture tells us to do, but it's not our job to convict them or to condemn them or to exile them or whatever is going on short of reaching habitual sins that that a church might deal with that has to be dealt with in a disciplinary um, format. So we need to, to end here. And I'm sorry if I was not able to cover something that you might have thought would have been nice if I covered. I wish I had time to talk about a little bit of remarriage, but I, I made a few comments there. I just didn't have enough time. But the big thing that I wanted to bring out is that 
the example of Adam and Eve's marriage. That's what God wanted. Sin corrupted that. Because of sin and because of the hardness of heart, there's divorce now. And as a church, as a Christian community, we need to figure out ways to love on those people, help them, encourage them to heal if possible, to reconcile with their spouse if possible. But even if that doesn't happen, loving them as brothers and sisters and growing together as a community. So, that's what I have for you today. And why don't we go ahead and move into communion and the worship team. Oh, here she comes. The worship team come up and lead us in song. Come up and gather the elements. They're in the song and uh, just hold them and we'll celebrate together. Yeah.
So with communion, one of the things that we look forward to is being united with Christ someday. And what did I mention in the beginning is that it's going to be as His bride and we'll be involved in that marriage of Jesus and His bride where things will be made perfect. All this corruption, all this dysfunction, sins that are all around us and in our own lives will all be gone. What a glorious day and time that will be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that he received from the Lord what also he is giving to the Corinthians that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take it together and in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God bless you. Hope you have some celebrations today. Yeah, give her one of those. And let's uh, close in prayer and we'll sing our last song. Father, thank you again for the time that we had together. We pray that you will, um, through your Holy Spirit, just uh, help us consider the words that we heard today. And uh, Lord, through whatever understanding we may come, I, I do pray that we as a church, we as individuals and as families here, become people of the cross who not only understands grace, but understands how to extend grace to each other. We are such a fallen people that hurt each other and and do things that we shouldn't do, even mistakenly. But we pray that uh, you'll help us to be people who extend grace. Thank you for your mercies and your grace that you pour on us. Thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve. And we pray again for the mothers and especially those that are still with us and, and uh, even the memories of those who have gone before us. And we just thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.
find you in the place. 